Thank you, Joanne. Please take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will begin reading at verse 17, and we will read through chapter 3, verse 5. As you probably know, the um, chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired, and um, sometimes there are some, I think, bad ones, and this is a bad one. Um, it really is one passage, and so there shouldn't be a, an artificial division between chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 1, in my opinion. Um, and so we're going to look at this whole passage together tonight. First Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 17. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were, we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Some of you um, probably like to read biographies. And um, one of the reasons that we enjoy reading biographies is they give us a window into the life of that person. Uh, you read a good biography and you come away from that biography probably saying, you know, I learned a lot about that person. I remember years ago reading a, a biography by Eric Metaxas on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you read that book, and it's a pretty thick book, and you, you learn a lot about that man. And maybe you've read a biography before, and it's really struck you when you finish that book that you seem to know that person a, a lot better than you did before. As I mentioned to you last Sunday night, um, this is one of Paul's most personal letters. Now, now, certainly in his other books, for example, in First and Second Corinthians, we see his his deep concern for that church that had so many troubles and difficulties. Uh, we see when he, he writes the book of Galatians that he was very righteously angry that, that the Galatians had been moved to another gospel which was not the gospel. We see Paul's care for the young pastor Timothy in First and Second Timothy, but, but perhaps no other letter written by Paul shows his heart and, and shows his love for the church than 1 Thessalonians. We saw that last week as, as Paul used, you remember the analogies of, of being a mother and a father, show his love and his affection for the Christians in Thessalonica. Paul had a great love for this church. And, and as we look at this passage tonight, that, that heart continues to come out. 
And, and it's a reminder to us, not, not just people who may be a spiritual leader in the church, but it's a reminder to all of us of, of the affection that we should feel for each other. The, the concern that, that we should have for one another spiritually, especially. And so there are three things that we want to see here tonight. First of all is Paul's passion. And, and then there is, is Paul's plan. And then there is Paul's purpose. His passion, his plan, and his purpose. Now, Paul starts out by referencing the fact that, that he has been torn away from the Thessalonians for a short time. Now, now remember what I said to you when we started this book, that, that Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Children, uh, Paul took three missionary journeys. And on the second one, he, he went to Thessalonica probably around 48 or 49 A.D. And, and for three straight Sabbaths, he went into the synagogue and he basically preached the gospel. He, he preached that, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He was the Messiah who came to, to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. And so he went in three straight Saturdays and he preaches the gospel. And is true, as is true with most preaching, there were mixed results. On the one hand, there were a number of people who were converted. A number of people heard the gospel. They, they recognized their sin. They, they confessed their sin. They embraced Christ as, as Lord and Savior. But on the other hand, there were some people who were, well, they were very upset. They didn't like it. In fact, there was a, a group of Jews in Thessalonica who who were so upset they formed a mob and, and they went to the, the city, the officials in the city, and they demanded that, that Paul and his colleagues be thrown out of the city. And, and that's what happened. If you read Acts, you remember that, that Paul and Silas, because of persecution, had to leave Thessalonica, but, but not before he had preached the gospel there. Well, now we, we fast forward a year later, and, and Paul writes this letter, and he says, we were torn away from you. He's referring to that time when he had to leave the city. And, and what's interesting is that that phrase, torn away, comes from a Greek word that means to be orphaned. Paul literally feels like an orphan at this point. That, that's how much he loved this church. In, in the last passage, Sunday night, Paul viewed himself as a, as a parent, as a mother, as a father. Now he views himself as a child. And he is so hurt, he is so troubled, he is so weighed down with the fact that he had to be away from these Christians that he feels like he'd been orphaned. Children, imagine being away from your parents. How, how sad that would be, how miserable that would be. And that's what Paul says here. I, I'm so miserable. I feel like I've been orphaned from you. But, but even though Paul couldn't be there in Thessalonica physically, even though he couldn't see these believers, they were still on his heart. And again, this, this is the love that Paul has for this church. He, he just can't stand the idea of being away from them. He can't stand the idea of being removed from them. He, he's longing to see them face to face. Most of us here tonight have experienced something like this. Maybe it's a, a close friend. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe your, your child goes away to college or a really good friend moves out of the area and, and you know it's hard, right? You miss seeing them. Now in our day, we, we have the advantage of FaceTime and, and Zoom, but we know that those are not the same. They're just not. 
Paul really wants to see these Christians. He wants to see them face to face. He wants to see how they're doing. And it's not just a one-time desire. He, he says, I wanted to do this again and again and again. Don't you love that about Paul? This is, this is the heart that this man has for this church. He, he doesn't see himself as a hired gun. He doesn't see himself as a, as a guy who's been hired to go in there and plant a church and get a church started and then he can just walk away. He has a special connection with these people. And I think this is probably something that most pastors and, and even elders can relate to. Over the years, I've, I've had opportunities to preach in other churches, and it's not something I really enjoy doing at all. Uh, one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of, of pulpit supply or pulpit exchange, whatever you want to call it, and, and preaching in other churches is it's not the same. You don't know those people. You, you feel most comfortable with your own congregation. And, and that's how Paul was. Paul knew these people. He, he loved these people. He cared about these people. And out of his great love and concern, he wants to visit them to see how they're doing. And, and notice how Paul describes them. It's very interesting in verse 19 what he says. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. A lot of people have wondered over the years what that means. But but I think basically what it means is Paul, when it came to his ministry with these people, he had an eternal perspective. He, he, He wasn't in it for the numbers. He he wasn't in it to grow a budget. He wasn't in it to to make himself look good. He was in it to minister to the souls of people, the eternal souls of people. And Paul's greatest desire is that these people would be with him in heaven one day. You know, Paul suffered a lot during his ministry. If if you want to be reminded of, of what some of the things he suffered, read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 sometime. And, and you read a passage like that and, and you read about all the things that he went through. Or you read a, a good Christian biography of maybe a missionary. And, and you read about their sufferings and you read about their difficulties. You read about all their trials and, and, and you say to yourself, why would someone do that? Why would someone, Paul, why would you go through all that stuff? Why not just Pack it in. Well, the chief reason is because he lived his life to to please and honor Christ. But another reason he endured this is because of what he says in verses 19 and 20. Because he truly cared about the souls of people. That's the point he's making. Do we care about people's souls that much? It's a difficult question. Do we care about people's eternity that much? This is Paul's heart for this church, his his love for them, his concern for them. So you can see why he he really, really wants to see these people. But then notice the end of verse 18. Four words, but Satan hindered us. Now, this has raised a lot of questions throughout the years, and you are one question throughout the years, and you know what the question is probably. How did Satan hinder Paul? 
What, what is Paul talking about? Now, the best way to answer that question is, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is every preacher's friend. The secret things belong to God. And, and that's the case here. We don't know how Satan hindered Paul, but most of us pastors and theologians like to hypothesize. We, we like to think of things that might have hindered Paul and ways that Satan might have done this, and there's a few possibilities. One possibility is that Paul's thorn in the flesh prevented him from going to Thessalonica. You might remember in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had of heaven, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Paul had been given something that he calls a thorn in the flesh. Some people believe that this was a physical ailment. Some people even speculate that that Paul had some kind of nasty eye condition that maybe prevented him from traveling. Or maybe the thorn in the flesh was that Paul struggled with melancholy or depression. By the way, that's been the case with a lot of famous preachers. Martin Luther suffered depression. Charles Spurgeon suffered depression. Maybe, maybe Paul suffered depression. We don't know. Another possibility is that Satan prevented Paul from returning to Thessalonica through the Jews in Thessalonica. The same ones who who drove him out of the city the first time threatened maybe to kill him if he came back a second time. Or or maybe the the big uproar in Thessalonica the first time because of the Jews led the city officials to make some kind of pronouncement, Paul, you and Silas are never welcome here again. Maybe that's the, the, the way that Satan hindered Paul. But again, the fact of the matter is we don't know. God has not chosen to reveal to us what it was that kept Paul from going to Thessalonica. But here's what I want to drive home to you in this statement. And that is that whatever it was that hindered Paul is a reminder to us that Satan will do anything he can to hinder and stop the progress of the gospel. He will do whatever he can to disrupt the ministry of a church and to silence the proclamation of the word of God. We we have to again realize the spiritual battle that we are in. Now sadly, about 10 years ago, a survey was taken of around 2,000 professing evangelical Christians. And one of the statements in this survey was, agree or disagree, Satan is not a living being, but simply a symbol of evil. Satan is not a living being, but simply a symbol of evil. Agree or disagree? 59% of evangelicals surveyed agreed with that statement. In other words, six out of every ten people, people who profess to be an evangelical Christian, believe that Satan is not real. The Apostle Paul would disagree with that. Every writer of Scripture would disagree with that. Satan is very real. He hates God. He hates you. He hates the gospel. 
And, and he will do whatever he can do to prevent the gospel from being proclaimed. And so whatever it was that, that kept Paul from returning to Thessalonica, Paul recognized that it was because of the enemy. It was because of Satan. I don't want to keep belaboring this point because we've seen it in the book of Revelation, but we are in a spiritual war. Parents, your children are in a spiritual war. This spiritual war is very, very real. As you minister or leaders in the church, as you carry out a shepherding ministry here, whether you're an elder or a deacon, you have to remember Satan is going to attack that. He doesn't want you caring for the souls of people. He's going to try to to get you off the path of ministering to this flock. He's going to do whatever he can do to hinder, thwart, and stop the ministry that goes on in this church and every church. Paul understood that he was in the middle of a spiritual battle and that as much as he wanted to see the Thessalonians, there was someone doing anything he could to keep that from happening. That was Paul's passion for this church, wasn't it? Now he has a plan. He's been hindered, but he comes up with something. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Again, that, that, that first statement opens up Paul's heart. He says, When we could bear it no longer... Again, this is a feeling that we can relate to. Earlier I mentioned to you how how difficult it is when a close friend moves away and and we get to the point where, like Paul, we we say we we can't handle this separation. I I can't handle not not knowing how that person is doing. Now, obviously, it's a little easier in our day. We can can send a quick text. We can jump on FaceTime. uh, We can hop on a plane. We can get in our car. Paul didn't have any of that in his day. He was was separated from these people. Quite a distance, as I will share with you in just a moment. He's burdened for these people. And he can't bear it anymore. You'll you'll notice that Paul mentions Athens in verse 1. Did you know that the distance from Athens to Thessalonica was 300 miles? Now, 300 miles in our day is, is still a little bit of a trip. It's like going from here to L.A., But it doesn't take you that long to go 300 miles, maybe five hours, depending on how fast you drive. But in Paul's day, a 300-mile trip would take you about 15 days. And so this is very difficult, and Paul loves these people. They're very dear to him. He's like a spiritual father to them. He wants to know how they're doing, but at this point, Satan has has hindered him, and it's just it's killing him. And so he comes up with a plan, and and he says, I can't bear this any longer, and so I'm going to send Timothy. And we know Timothy, right? Timothy was uh, an associate of Paul's. Two, two letters of the New Testament are written to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Timothy was very valuable to, to Paul. He was, um, he was a very close associate with Paul. And, and Paul did the same thing. He would send Timothy to other churches. He did that before. For, for example, in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul says, This is why I sent you Timothy. 
to remind you of my ways in Christ as, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Philippians 2.19, he says, I, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he says, I can't come, but I can do the next best thing and I'll send Timothy. Even if it isn't easy for Paul, because he says in verse 1, we were willing to be left behind. Paul and Silas were willing to be left behind and, and, and lose out on Timothy so that Timothy could go and see the Thessalonians. Now why did Paul do this? Why did, why did Paul send Timothy to see how they were doing? By the way, we, we've done this before, right? We, we've sent deacons or other individuals have gone to see our missionaries. I think that's a great practice. They go visit Fikret or, or Jude or Bill Green or some other missionaries and, and, and encourage these men and see how their work is going. And that's kind of what Paul does. He says, I'm going to send Timothy. And, and notice the end of verse 2, Paul tells us the reason, the purpose for which he sent Timothy. He says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now here's what's interesting. You know, if you've read the New Testament, that Paul, Paul writes some letters to some churches that had some real problems. First uh, Corinthians is, is just you know filled with difficulty after difficulty. It was a it was a pretty messed up church. Galatians, it deviated from the gospel. They lost the gospel in a sense. They were, they were preaching salvation by grace plus works. Imagine that happening in, in this church or another church. But the third church in Thessalonica was doing really well. This was a strong church. If, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about their, their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, he talks about the fact that they, they accepted the word of God for what it really is. Uh, chapter 1, he talks about how they had, they had um, displayed the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering. Chapter 1, he talks about their faithful witness throughout the region. Chapter 1, he talks about how they turned from idolatry to, to worship the living and true God. This is a really solid church, and, and most of us might be tempted to think, well, they're doing fine. We, we don't need to worry about them. But Paul still wants to see them grow. And this is a reminder to us tonight, just in this little statement that Paul makes, this is a reminder that we never, ever reach the place in the Christian life where we stop growing. You never get to a point, and I never get to a point, where we can go, you know what, I don't, I don't really need to read my Bible anymore. I've read it. I don't need to pray anymore. I don't need to really attend church all that often and I don't really need to get involved. Spiritual growth is an ongoing process and Paul's desire, as, as solid and as faithful as this church was, was to see these Christians established and exhorted in their faith. The word established in verse 2 means to strengthen or to support. Paul wants to see these believers strengthened in their faith, strengthened in their trust of the Lord. And, and the word encourage basically means to, to the call to apply something. 
In other words, Paul wants them to apply what they know. And I remind all of us tonight that both of these are crucial. We, we need to be taught the word of God so that, so that our faith, our trust in the Lord will, will grow stronger and will deepen. Doctrine is not unimportant. Theology is, is not insignificant. It's very important. God uses sound doctrine to deepen our faith. He uses good theology to, to strengthen our faith. But at the same time, we have to take what we learn and apply it. We have to take what we learn and, in a sense, live it out. It's not merely about head knowledge. And so, for example, if you were here this morning, we looked at Revelation 19, and, and we saw the, you remember, the four hallelujahs coming from heaven. And, and we saw in those hallelujahs a, a praise to God that, that one day justice will prevail. That's a wonderful truth. But, but now we need to take that knowledge and we need to, in a sense, live it out. And we need to apply it to our lives by, by knowing that this world has no ultimate power or meaning or significance for us. By, by living in such a way that, that we acknowledge that evil in the end will not prevail, that Jesus wins. And, and so there is a, an understanding of Scripture. Paul wants Timothy to go and teach these Christians the truth, but he then wants them to live it out. Now specifically, you will notice here in our passage that Paul is especially concerned about the hostility that they are facing. He says at the beginning of verse 3 that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul knew that they were suffering um, Paul knew that they were being mistreated. Paul knew that some of them had probably been misowned by their, or disowned by their families. Uh, some of them had lost their jobs. Some of them had lost their lives. And, and Paul knew that, that there are those who, who, when affliction comes, people who profess the name of Christ, sometimes when persecution hits, they fall away. Didn't Jesus say that in, in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? You remember what Jesus said. He said, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Paul's very concerned about this. He doesn't want to see this happen to the Thessalonians. He doesn't want to see them fall away because of persecution. He says in verse 3, I, I don't want you, notice, to be moved. See that little phrase, to be moved? It's a really interesting phrase in the original language. Um, the Greek word, which is seno, um, can literally be translated to wag the tail. That's what it literally means, to wag the tail. It was the, it was the word that was used to refer to a dog wagging its tail. Children, you've seen, a, you've seen a dog wagging its tail before, right? You see a dog come up to you, and all of a sudden that, that dog starts wagging its tail. Now, why does a dog wag its tail? Because it wants something from you. It wants you to give it something. And so in the first century, this, this Greek word, seno, came to, to mean to flatter or to fascinate or to allure. 
And, and Paul is using this word here because he is imagining that there might be some people in Thessalonica who are basically trying to deceive the Christians to walk away from the Lord, who are basically saying to the Christians, you know what, you don't have to deal with this persecution anymore. You don't have to deal with this hostility. You don't have to deal with this harassment. And besides, where's Paul? He's not even here. Just give up the Christianity stuff and everything will be better for you. That's what the Thessalonians were dealing with. Not only were they dealing with outright persecution, but they were also dealing with the dog wagging its tail. In other words, they were dealing with people who were trying to deceive them into giving up their faith in Christ. And so Paul sends Timothy so that Timothy will teach them truth, so that Timothy will minister to them. And Paul basically ends the passage by saying, don't forget what I told you when I was there, that you will suffer if you are a Christian. That's what you can expect. That's what I can expect. That's what we can expect as Christians in this world, that if we follow Jesus, we can expect to be treated like Jesus. How was Jesus treated? He was harassed, he was mocked, he was persecuted. And so we can expect that life will be hard. One man once said this, he said, if you were, if you were to ask a Christian who was living in the first century, what does it mean to be a Christian? He said, this man would answer you, it means somebody who suffers for the gospel. That's the definition of a Christian in the first century. Somebody who suffers for the gospel. Now we've probably lost sight of that in our affluent day and age. We, we may think we suffer, but we don't really suffer like those Christians in the first century. We don't suffer like Christians in North Korea. But suffering is the normal lot for the believer. Don't expect this life to be as easy. Don't expect this unbelieving world to be your friend. And this is why, like the Thessalonians, we need a steady diet of the word of God. We need to know the truth. We need to hear the truth. And then we need to take that truth and we need to live it out. And this is also why we need one another. Because we can't live the Christian life as lone rangers. God has put us in the body of Christ to minister to and serve and support one another. And so once again, the heart of Paul. He loves this church. And it's a reminder of the love and the concern that we are to have for one another. Let's bow in prayer.